Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming back to the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most interesting, authentic, and innovative leaders in the world. Now, before we jump in again to this week's episode, this is just one more reminder to review this podcast on iTunes. And our guest today runs a wildly successful global app And I bet she's going to want you to do the same thing. So just, you can do two reviews at once in response to this podcast. We'll get to that in a minute. Today, we're joined by Vlada Bortnik. She is the founder of Joya, that's J-O-Y-A. And Joya's product is the famous Marco Polo app, which we're going to hear all about. Vlada, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're really, really glad to be able to talk. I know that most people in the world know what Marco Polo is, but... In this moment, just so everybody's level set on what you're doing now, let's have the two-sentence elevator pitch on Marco Polo. Go. All right. Uh, Well, Marco Polo is a video communications app. It's a turn-based face-to-face messaging. So the great thing about it is that you can have the richness and the emotional connection that you get when you talk on Skype or FaceTime, but the convenience of a text message because you get to talk when it's convenient for you and the person replies when it's convenient to them. Awesome. Well done. That was really efficient. (laughs) Bravo. It's not so easy (laughs) as everyone else out there knows. Okay. So, Vlada, the way we start every Real Leaders podcast is we ask our guest for their three-minute life story. And just so you know, it always takes longer. And I usually (laughs) interrupt. So, go. So, the story starts in Ukraine. I was born in a town called Odessa, Ukraine. And we immigrated to U.S. in 1990 right when the Soviet Union was collapsing. And to my surprise, I didn't know there was Christmas, but we came on Christmas Day to New York, and there were lights everywhere. I thought that was amazing, especially as a kid. I was only about uh, 10 and a half years old. And then from New York, we went to Kansas, uh, where I went to school there, middle school and high school. Wait, hold on a sec. Yeah? How in the world did your family choose Kansas? It's a great question. I did not know about Kansas before we got there, except from, <laughs> uh, except I guess Wither of Oz was the only there reference you I, and you I heard of. And you also weren't in charge, probably. So and I was not in charge, choice. yeah. All I, really, all I knew about America was about Disney World. So Kansas was not Disney World. Uh, but the only way we could immigrate at that time was if you had a direct relative who lived in the States. And it just so happened my uncle, my dad's brother, lived in Kansas. And so that was the only place we were allowed to move. And he immigrated there in the 70s, which at that time they had all kinds of restrictions on where you can immigrate to. And they were really promoting Kansas. Yeah, Um, apparently. apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're 10 years, you're 10 and a half years old. Do you speak English at this time? I was studying English. So it was my second, it was like a second language you were learning in school. So I was supposed to know how to speak English, but as anybody knows, when they move to a new country, you don't actually know how to speak the language, uh, despite many years of studying it. So it was an interesting transition. I did a lot of nodding and pretending like I understood what people were saying. (laughs) (laughs) And it took many, many months, uh, probably a full year before I was really fluent, but it came in time. What's the most influential thing you did to get more fluent in English? Oh, I think it was just being thrown in the deep end of the pool. Like I went to a normal school, like, you know, we did some ESL classes um, as part of the school, but I was 24-7 surrounded by people speaking English. So I didn't have a choice. I, I had to learn. How jarring was that for you as a 10-year-old? Uh, well, 
I was filled with a lot of excitement to come because when I was living in Ukraine, it was part of the Soviet Union. Like even as a kid, like I realized it wasn't like an amazing place to live. Like oftentimes, you know, grocery stores didn't have food in the store or you would go and it's like the last thing that's all molded. You often had to wait in line for food and um, there were certain stores that were only available to foreigners. So when I came to U.S., there was so much excitement as a kid, like seeing seeing all the plethora of options in a grocery store. I remember my first trip to the grocery store and seeing chocolate shell syrup that you put on ice cream. It's like the chocolate syrup that turns into a shell. And I just thought, oh my gosh, America is amazing. <laughs> um, I mean, that is one reason America is amazing. <laughs> I like that stuff a lot. Plus, bonus points for all of those of you who are listening, who have been speaking English since your first day in life. Uh, plethora. If you can inject a word that's as good as plethora <laughs> in your sentences, you're you're in really good shape and on par with Vlada. All right, so you're there. It's jarring, but they have magic shell, and so it's great. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's great. Okay, I, so what happens next? Um, I think the hardest part for me was really around middle school because I think at that point the kids became a little bit more, I would say, mean, and at that point is when it actually got harder. And at that point is when I was missing. Um, Ukraine a lot more not so much Ukraine itself but just my life my social life there um, because I wasn't different I didn't have to be picked on I wasn't bullied and in fact I was one of the students who was doing well and and in Ukraine at the time if you were a good student you were the popular kid quite the opposite of of that in the states usually if you have good grades you're picked on yeah. um, so it was a that, that was also really jarring uh, transition. What do you think you learned or you got from that experience of not fitting in or being mistreated in those years that, that's helped you in your life? I think there are uh, a couple things. One is, that's actually a really good question, so nobody's ever asked me that before. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I think that I have a leg up on a lot of other kids who unfortunately get bullied is that I knew a time when I wasn't bullied, and I really remember that. And so to me, when I was being bullied, it really felt like, that's not me. Why are they doing that to me? Like, that's not how it's supposed to be. So it felt like, I mean, it, it was miserable, but the time was also really confusing. Like, I was living in this, like, different reality. And I felt like I always had a connection of, like, that's not, that's not how it's supposed to be. Huh. And so I think that it allowed me to, like, be more in touch with who I really am, which has served me really well throughout my life. And then the other part of it, about it is when I finally stood up to my biggest bully in high school, my freshman year of high school, that's still my, you know, top three proudest moments. Tell the story of that. Was it a man or a girl or a boy? I yeah, guess it was a boy. It was a boy who bullied me relentlessly all through middle school. And in high school, we ended up being in the same science class. And I really had this image of like, okay, when I get to high school, kids, it's going to be over. Like I kind of had this like timeline horizon. High school is going to be totally different. And then here we are in the first few months of high school and we're in the same science class and he's sitting in the back of me and he's throwing things in my hair to see if it would stick there. And it, I just was like, okay, this is it. And as the teacher was doing the lecture, I just stood up in the middle of the class. I interrupted the teacher and I turned around to him and I said, Stan, we're in high school now. Don't you think it's time for you to grow up? Wow. <laughs> and... Everybody was shocked. <laughs> the teacher asked him to leave and go to the principal's office. Wow. And he has never, he'll never bother me again. And that was the end of my bullying. Like, yeah, no one ever, bothered you again after nobody that. Nobody bothered me again, yeah. 
So, you know, I really learned the power of standing up for myself and saying, like, what's true. Wow. That makes sense. It was a defining experience for me. That's a great story. Okay. You had your, your peak moment maybe in high school and probably yeah. not when you told off Stan, but, but how was high school for you? High school was great. I actually really enjoyed high school. I felt like I was really developing great friendships. My, my close, my best friend is still my friend from high school. And my high school was great because it gave me lots of opportunities. I, I've always been into art. So I took a lot of art classes in, in high school as well. But also my high school offered computer science classes. So I got to take some of that pretty early on and really pick my interest in computers and technology. And that really became the foundation of a lot of things that I'm doing now in my, in my career. So was it obvious that you were going to college? You have this immigrant family. I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, was it just painstakingly clear you were doing that? Yes, yes. It was obvious I was going to get go to college. There was no, the, that was no question. The question was just which college. And when we immigrated here, we didn't have any money at all because of the way we immigrated. We had to save all. We had to spend all our savings on the tickets. So the question was, am I going to be able to afford the college that I want to go to? But luckily, I got into Northwestern, and they offered me a great uh, financial aid package. And I was, that's where I went. Did you leave with student loans? Uh, I did leave with student loans, um, but I was also really fortunate because my last year um, of college, I got a great scholarship from Microsoft, so they paid for my expenses. Wow. Yeah, nice. they paid for tuition. It was, it was amazing. What did you major in at Northwestern? Um, I was double major in computer engineering and art. <laughs> was there <laughs> anyone else that had those two majors in the whole school? You know, it's, no, but there's a guy that I went to high school with who also went to Northwestern. His name is Kevin, and he double majored in computer engineering and dance. And, you know, he's also from Kansas. And so what? our, I know, so our uh, advisor at the time was like, what's going on with Kansas? Because usually people who major in computer engineering then minor, then double major in other engineering type things. And we were the only ones who uh, said, no way. we gotta, we got to exercise both parts of our brains. Do you still make art? I mean, I'm using that term literally because figuratively I understand that lots about Marco Polo could be construed as art. But uh, I want to do arts and crafts with my kids. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> That's the extent of it. Okay. Awesome. You go to Northwestern, you got a scholarship. or it, that, Was that an integrated program for Microsoft where you went there after school? What happened was after three years, I was an intern at Microsoft. And then after my internship for my last year, they offered me the scholarship. It was just because I was, a, I think, a woman engineering. I'm not sure if it, had to, it required me to go to Microsoft. Got it. But I did. I you loved did. Microsoft. Yeah, it was a great experience. What did you love about it? It was such a great experience because I had so much opportunity to do what I, what I wanted to do. There was so much ownership given to somebody who is really very, very green. You know, right out of college, I was in charge of, of products. I mean, I was the PM on Microsoft Office, uh, the online services. It was the first time they were incorporating web into wow. the client. And I got to design like a lot of, a lot of it and work with engineers. And it was just a, a lot of responsibility for somebody who was, you know, 22 years old. Um, and I don't think I would have gone that anywhere else. And they also did a great job with training, with training, um, and making sure that we had the support we needed. I don't know. I, and being surrounded with really smart people who cared about 
what they're working on. I really, I really love my experience at Microsoft. How long were you there after as a full time person? Five years. Five years. You did like it. Yeah. I mean, it was I think four. Then I took, I left to go to California, and then I came back for six more months. <laughs> and of those five years, what was the most interesting thing you had a chance to do at Microsoft? Uh, it's hard to pick. The most exciting thing I would say was working on uh, when I joined the MSN team. It, there's no MSN team anymore. By the time there's MSN team, that's the team that did MSN Messenger, and we're going to be working on this new product that was going to compete with a messenger that Apple had created, mm-hmm. and it was going to use this like really cool technology that detects when people are nearby and lets you chat with them. Um, and it was really cutting edge, and also was a really challenging business problem too because Microsoft already had these other messengers. So how we're going to integrate and how we're going to define the use case for this was I don't know, really interesting to me. Huh. And we, wow. we end up cutting the product in the end uh, based on my, rec- my recommendation <laughs> of cutting it, which is one of the reasons why I was so interested to work on it, is to realize that actually, no matter how cool it is, it didn't make sense for Microsoft to keep investing in it. That's a great experience for a startup founder, actually. Yeah. <laughs> huh. That is a good experience. I haven't connected those two before. Now that you're in a startup, what are three things you really miss about working at Microsoft? Uh, the vacation policy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, just being able to really take off and, and let go a little bit more than, than before. Yeah. Benefits, other benefits too. Yeah. Um, I think also the cool thing with Microsoft was the support that you got because there's so many people you're surrounded with. And our company is, everybody's distributed, everybody's remote. And so we have a lot of interactions, but on a day-to-day basis, I mostly hang out with my husband. So part of the thing that was really nice about Microsoft is having this feeling of a community and knowing that anytime there's somebody in this, in this building or nearby that I can go and chat with and get advice on various topics. Got it. Your husband also works with you, right? Yes, we're co-founders. I, I just wanted to be clear when you said I spend most of my time hanging out with my husband. Oh, yes. You weren't just getting lattes <laughs> at... Uh, the local coffee joint. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you might be also doing that, but, but you're also talking about work. Yes. Great. So why did you leave Microsoft? Because we wanted to start something on our own. So I met my husband while we were at Microsoft and we had this experience of, of starting a nonprofit together and we really loved working together and, you know, coming up with an idea and, and seeing it through from beginning to all the way to execution and success. What was the nonprofit? Uh, it was called ArtReach, and it, our mission was to make art more approachable. Um, it was based on research that if, if people had original piece of art in their house, it actually increased their happiness. So we wanted to do more things. We saw our friends spending, you know, two hundred, three hundred dollars on a pair of jeans or purses, but they would they had posters from IKEA in their houses. <laughs> and so we thought we could do better. So we have these like art parties and we worked with local artists to sell artwork under $200. And we had like art auctions. Our last event had like 300 people at a bar on Tuesday night and all the art was like basically sold out. Wow. It was so much fun. Wow. Yeah. It was, and it was just like, a, it was just really fun to work together on this. And so we, we knew that's where we got a lot of energy. We knew that's what we wanted to do. And at first it really was like, we just wanted to be starting things together and so he, he's been wanting to go to business school and he ended up choosing to go to GSB at Stanford, the graduate school at Stanford. So we moved to California with this plan of starting a company. So while he was at Stanford, I was doing 
startups on a site, <laughs> starting one, cutting it, starting one, cutting it, and, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Um, until we both took this class, entrepreneurship class at Stanford, that ended up leading to our first, com- like, you know, first real, real company um, that got funded and everything. That's called, that was called Ed Nectar. Tell us a little bit about that business and just say the name one more time. Oh, it's called Ed Nectar. Okay, great. What was that company about? Yeah, it was advertising technology company. It was back when Facebook just launched their platform for publishers. And there was this thing going on around virtual goods. And, you know, where you can send each other a coffee cup and you can send each other um, a cookie and flowers and so on. It's, it was these virtual gifts that you can send each other. And so we saw the opportunity to productize that and work with brands. So instead of a coffee, it's a Starbucks latte. Instead of a cookie, it's a Nestle cookie. And so brands would get this increased engagement with the brand. Publishers would get extra money for their games. And we would be the people who are making this whole thing work. And you got funding for that company? Yeah. Yeah. We had funding. Um, when I'm getting funding from Kleiner. Um, and it was the two of us, Miha and I, plus another couple who did it, who are, are still our best friends. But what we realized from that is starting a company based on the business opportunity is not the right way to start a company. Say more about what do you mean by that? Well, we didn't know anything about advertising. We didn't particularly feel passionate about advertising. What we were really excited about was the four of us working together and we saw that there was going to be a a business opportunity. We thought there might be a financial outcome, but we weren't doing it because we're passionately motivated to create this like value for advertisers. Got it. You you see what I mean? Like very um, business motivated, (laughs) financial outcome motivated. Yeah. And what was the outcome of that company? We ended up selling it to lockers. Um, I don't know if you remember that company. Yeah. Uh, Does that end in an S or a Z? Z. Yeah. But, but basically, we just we wanted to just be out of it because we realized at the end of Ed Nectar, we had our first daughter. And we realized that, as everybody says, it's true. Kids do change your life. And we started thinking about, like, well, what kind of life do we want to model for her? And we realized that what really matters is to work on something that's really meaningful. Um, and what we were doing was not personally meaningful to us. And so we end up. Um, it wasn't like a huge financial success. We ended up selling it um, just so that we can have time to think about what next, what's the next thing we want to do and how we can really model for our kids what it's like to work on something that's meaningful and impactful and joyful to work on. Were you involved in fundraising for that company? I didn't lead the financing, um, but we still had to be part of the meetings. Mm-hmm. And tell me if this is confidential, but did you return capital to your investors in that company? Uh, we have not ever discussed that. Okay, great. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So you had a disposition of that company and what happened next? Uh, well next it was, uh, I was pregnant with our second kid. Our two kids are very close together and we were figuring out what we're going to do next with our life. And we went to Europe because I went to sell a company and you don't have another company to work at. It turns out you don't qualify for health insurance because this was before Obamacare. Huh. Um, and so we were a little freaked out that I wasn't going to have health insurance as a pregnant person. So we went to Europe because health care costs are cheaper there uh, while trying to qualify for health insurance in, in states. And spending a lot of time thinking about what is it that really matters to us? How can we make an impact in the world? And, you know, and do this like in a way that doesn't feel like 
a chore does it feel like work feels like something joyful to do and so because we were having kids and at the time my family was spread across the u.s my sister was on the east coast the family in the midwest and Mihao's family Mihao's my husband it was and it still is spread across europe trying to figure out how we're staying in touch was something that's becoming harder and harder you know we're using skype but scheduling skype sessions with many family members is not easy so figuring out how to help people feel close was something that we decided was was a purpose that we could really be, be behind and we wanted to do it in a way that could impact a billion people that's the goal that we set for ourselves so that we wouldn't work on something small another thing that became important is that every day if we're going to be leaving our kids with somebody else to watch them we had to be in an environment that just felt really joyful mm. that it didn't feel draining and so that's what we set out to create wow. <laughs> before we knew exactly what it is we're going to do. Those were the pieces of the puzzle that were important to us. I love that you set it a small impact goal of just a billion people not knowing exactly <laughs> what you were going to do. Um, I like the I like the stretch from your family to a billion people and, and extrapolating that. You have been working on messaging at this time since the very beginning of your professional career. Mm -hmm. At that time, we had Skype, WhatsApp was around, right? Yeah. All right. So what was the gap that you were seeing that couldn't be met by, I know you weren't going to start another comp company just because you saw a business opportunity, but what was the gap? We actually asked ourselves this question too, because there's so many communication apps out there. Why are we making yet another one? And for us, it came down to the fact that we were still saying it's so hard to stay in touch. When thinking about staying in touch, like our Saturdays were Skype sessions, like all of morning was spent scheduled Skype sessions. Wow. It did not feel joyful. <laughs> it was absolutely work and it felt like a chore. And like I saw it as our kids were getting older, like our older daughter was already a year and a half. It was, it was so hard to keep her still for that long. And so when people stop saying, I'm so bad at staying in touch. That's when I feel like our work is done. <laughs> you know, until then, we have a long ways to go. <laughs> All right. So talk about the inception of the company and just the trajectory, the highlights, the lowlights, the things that you saw weren't going to work and so you let go of. Well, so, so we had this purpose, but we're trying to figure out what, what is it we want to do. And we met with our friend Leah. And, and that's uh, our mutual friend, Leah Perlman. So. Yes, that's right. And you and met she, you two met at, at Microsoft, right? Yes, yes. Right. So we met up. At, she was running Happiness Institute at the time. And she had this great quote on the door that said, don't ask the world what it needs, but ask yourself what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is more people coming alive. And that quote was really impactful for us. We basically just every day started working on, on like doing something towards what we, what we wanted to accomplish but something that we personally just got joy out of. So I started designing and learning mobile design and Miha started to learn how to code. And we just created this prototype that was basically a, a video version of a wall, like a photo wallet. Remember back in the day, people used to carry these plastic things in your wallet with pictures of your family members sure. so you could show off. Yeah. So, by, by the way, for those of you who are under the age of 30, we're talking about a physical <laughs> object and physical yes. printed photos. There's, no, there's nothing digital about this concept. Okay. That's right. That's right. So we wanted to create a digital video version of that for our kids. So the first app we made was called Carousel, and it was pictures of family members, of our family members. And our daughter could tap on it, and it include pre-recorded messages they had sent to her, either songs and the language that they normally you know, speak, so Polish or Russian or English. 
uh, or books, or they would start pretend like they're having a conversation with her. Um, and we just saw this like amazing engagement that our kids were having. And then we started to create a user group with like 20 moms and they were just like loving the product. But meanwhile, we had bills to pay. And so we we're doing consulting work and we basically calculated just enough money that we had to make every month to cover the cost of our living expenses. So the rest of the time we could spend working on the startup. Um, and I remember this moment when a friend of ours came and, you know, we're trying to figure out how we're going to keep making this work because as our kids got older, we needed our, our cost of living would just increase and trying to figure out how to make this work and split our time was quite difficult. And at the time we had a friend come over for dinner because I was already considering going back to work and again, applying for a job for either Microsoft or somewhere else. And our friend just told us, you guys are crazy. Everybody I told this concept to loves this idea. Why are you not doing this full time? And we're like, uh, because we have bills to pay. <laughs> and he was, it was just fortunate enough. Like this is another way that, you know, I have this belief the universe is helping us. He had just sold his company and he was going to have a same outcome on it. And he said, I'll be your first investor. And so he, we gave him all the reasons he should not invest in us, um, but he denied them. And so then Miha and I decided, okay, if we can get um, a few more of our, of our friends to give us, to invest in this, to give us money for this, then we can, we could just be focused on this full time for the next six to eight months so we can provide the idea. Um, and that's what we did. We asked five people, they all said yes. And that gave us enough money to run for about six, six, eight months with this idea. And I remember the money was running out. We actually like, canceled the last, uh, the, our last paycheck because we weren't sure if we we're going to get the next set of money because we we're trying to raise um, a seed round, a proper seed round. Um, and then just at the buzzer, I think we just we ended up missing one paycheck and then we were able to get the, the money to come in with SoftTech and a few other um, investors. Awesome. How many people were you at that time? It was uh, Mihao and I, and then we just had people that we found through Odesk. Got so it. the employees were just the two of us. The raising for that seed round, what, what do you think the reason is that you guys were successful? At that point, I know we're not going to talk about numbers of users or amounts of money, but did you have critical mass in utilization, or was it some other reason you think these folks said yes? Uh, what we had was incredible engagement. And... It was pretty amazing retention and engagement. The people who were using this uh, very early version was, they were using it on a regular basis. And the, the testimonials that we had were really emotionally resonant. And I think it helped that people understood the use case. Yeah. Like communicating with your family. Once we explained that like, hey, it doesn't have to feel like this hard work. I think people could really get on the, on the same page. Got it. Okay. That's still true about yeah. your app is people still are addicted to it. So you raised the seed round, so you were able to stay in business. What happened next? Yeah. And then this was the app called Joya. And, you know, it, it got great accolades from Apple. It was actually featured. We were named, I can't remember which year it was, but Times Magazine had this like listing of top apps of the year. And we were on that. And, you know, it was all great, but it was really hard to have it grow. Um, so we had this really great engagement retention, but um, it was hard to make it grow. And so we were trying to figure out, okay, what we're going to do next. 
And this is actually when the WhatsApp and Kick and uh, we saw this proliferation of messaging devices, of messaging apps that were really overtaking regular SMSing on the phone. And we saw that none of them were working with video. And so we provided this opportunity to do video through these messaging apps. And we partnered with apps like Kick to be able to send video messages over Kick. And we saw tremendous growth, a lot of great usage and a lot of great insights. Uh, so you didn't build your own platform to send those, you, you leveraged someone else's platform? We leveraged somebody, yeah. We had, yeah. we, they still had to install our app, yeah. but the, to be able to upload the video and you know do all the right things to make it so they can actually send it. But then the se- actual sending part of it was done through um, apps like Kick and WhatsApp and Messenger. Got it. So it took nine iterations before we got to Marco Polo. Like Marco Polo, in the history of company, Marco Polo is pretty recent. There's There's been a lot of learning along the way. Yeah, and basically Marco Polo is the same concept, sending video messaging, but over your own platform, correct? Through the it's app. over our own platform, yeah. What differentiates the way it's done elsewhere is you typically record a video, then you wait for it to upload, and then it sends. And with Marco Polo, as you're talking, it's already sending. And what that creates is a like instant-like response. So it's turn-based like walkie-talkie, where by the time I'm done talking, you are already all caught up and ready to respond. So it makes makes it real-time. You know, I'm one of those people that has a thing about video, so uh, so I usually use audio messaging that way. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what are, like, who are the people that just love video communication? Why do they love it? And And then maybe next, kind of like, what's the use case that's just really blowing up on your end? Um, so with videos, I mean, I totally understand the not liking the video part of it. And we do have filters just for that to add a little bit more fun and less, um, you know, being conscious what you look like and talking to yourself and things like that. Yeah. Um, the, the reason video is so powerful is because you can really understand the emotion. You can really see it on a person's face much mm-hmm. easier than in audio. So it's really... It's communicating fully, I guess, is yeah. the is a difference. Yeah, nice. The other thing that's great there is, you know, of course, if you want to show things, so it's a great way to show what your kids are doing. And we have we have like fun use cases where like husband goes to the grocery store and shows his wife like which of these mayonnaise should I buy or which carrot should I get, and then the wife can help like you know not to be too gender. Yeah, I was gonna say that's basis, all right. But that is. Usually the case. Or the other one is where girlfriends go shopping and figure out which thing to wear. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the outfits. I do that. Um, I do that one. Um, yeah. All right. So use case that's just really shocked you and is really growing fast. I think the best, the best use case, it's not really shocking, but it's still the best use case, is just how much there is cross-generational use case. Oh. There are a lot of grandparents who are using this with, with their grandkids. And it just becomes this thing where, you know, usually before Marco Polo, I had to set up a time where my daughter can connect with her grandparents. But with Marco Polo, I can give her my phone and they can have a conversation very easily and, ha- and build up a relationship. And we actually, when we design Marco Polo, we keep that in mind, you know, making sure that it's easy for people who are not necessarily very tech savvy, can still be using Marco Polo and feel very at home using it. How long ago did you brand it Marco Polo and just go all the way in with this application? I think it's about three years. Okay. And you've raised another round. You said you've raised an A round? Yes. 
Mm -hmm. And when was that and what, what publicly reported about that in terms of the amount? And if you talk about any of your co-investors, who are those? Not your co-investors, your investors. We raised, see, I think it was about two, two or three years ago. Uh-huh. And it was about $5 million, Okay. Uh, with um, battery investments and altos. Got it. What's the revenue model for Marco Polo? <laughs> right now it's free. Okay. Our goal is to grow our users. You know, eventually we can charge for things like extra filters or, you know, maybe higher quality video. There's a, there's a few different ideas that we have that people have been asking for that we can potentially charge for in the future. But the basic use case will always be free because our, our purpose is to help people feel close and we would, we'll never take that away. How many people are you now? We're 19 people. I mean, that's a pretty lean operation. Is that's, what, that's what's given you so much life force over time, just staying lean? Yeah, we are. We're pretty lean. Well, we, we hire um, really good people. <laughs> so we can, do, we can do a lot of things. Our, our people are top, you know, best, of the, best in the world. Awesome. I don't know where it was, but I read something about Kick, or I heard a podcast about Kick and how hot it was among kids, and then how it really became kind of passe. Uh, it sort of like it just had a really fast rise and fall, if I understand correctly. By the way, is that incorrect? Is that also your understanding? You know, I actually don't know. I know that it was really hot for a really long time, and I have since we stopped using that platform, I have been not following it as well. Okay. How, how do you avoid being kind of the communication app that no one's paying attention to anymore? Well, for us, it comes down to meaningful relationships and, and being yourself. So with Marco Polo, there's, there's really not a lot, a lot of fanciness. We really just let the communication be the main thing that happens there. So as long as the people that you're talking to are people that you really care about, I, I think that's that's the key to it. You know, I think with Kick there was a lot of, well, at least when you sign up, you can sign up with email address, and there's a lot of meeting up and kind of meeting new people. With Marco Polo, it's really, it's not about that. It's about talking to your family and friends. It's people who you have connection with already. So Vlada, a question I ask every guest on this podcast is, Usually most of us have one piece of feedback that we've received our entire life and we just, no matter what we do, we keep getting some version of that same feedback as hard as we work on this one thing. What's yours? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm trying to think it's some version of be present. Be more present. You be more be, present, yeah. yeah. So like um, just remembering that the whatever stress I'm feeling right now, it's thinking about what might happen or reliving the thing that already happened. Mm. And if I, and this is true both in the business, but also like with kids, <laughs> if I'm feeling my, I call it Chiroko coming out, it's usually because I'm extrapolating that like, if I let them leave their socks on a floor, that means they're just going to be forever leaving socks on a floor and <laughs> grow up to be ungrateful children and take advantage of me. And, but if I just like, oh, their socks on a floor, I don't want them on a floor. Let me just pick them up. Huh. <laughs> there's no problem like then I can be more present and peaceful but it's really hard <laughs> yeah sounds hard uh, also hard in business I mean I, I really like that challenge the way you articulated it for business outcomes too so what's your wild guess what's your husband's version of the same feedback he's heard for his whole life because you've probably given it to him a few times I think it's actually the same thing because we work on it together <laughs> got it 
Perfect. Yeah, we both. Uh, this is the thing, you know, every day we, we actually have this like routine where we have tea together and we have like a two minute meditation and we try to read a quote from either Eckhart Tolle or Byron Katie to remind ourselves about being present and being in the moment and enjoying the gifts that we're given. Mm. And it's easily forgotten two minutes later. <laughs> wow, that's nice. It's forgotten two minutes later and then you get to do it again the next day. So it's yeah. pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I was true. really struck by your story about coming to the U.S. and having no money. Your family had no money. Mm-hmm. How has that influenced your relationship to money now, in particular being in a funded company, which is sort of a weird alter world anyway? Yeah, well, my parents don't get it at all. I'll just start there. Every, I, <laughs> they're really supportive. Like I couldn't, they've since moved here and I wouldn't be able to do the business if I didn't get their support. Um, but like, but they definitely have a hard time. Like they keep asking me when I'm going to get my, a real job. I've learned to realize that this is how things are done in Silicon Valley. And I think about a lot, you know, we are, we do want to have a financial outcome for our investors, especially, um, but also having them be along the journey and sharing the learnings and uh, the both the ups and the downs, they can then use that for their other investments. Great. I'm going to ask you three or four questions. You can only answer with one sentence. You ready? This okay. is the lightning round. <laughs> is being an immigrant still something that feels relevant to you today? Yes, it does. Very much so. One sentence. How? I define myself as an immigrant. I don't. I don't know how to answer that in one sentence. It just. Okay. It's. It's just who I am. I don't. I, I don't. Even though I'm, I'm very Americanized, I think of myself as an immigrant first. I relate quicker and easier to people who have come to this country, and I. I think share the struggles um, that I have. Great. And what do you imagine your kids will miss out on by virtue of being born here? Um, I think they'll. This is the and I hope they actually won't miss out on. But I think the thing they'll miss out on is not knowing what it's like to not have. Huh. Yeah, like not having the food that you want to have, not being able to just order, go to the restaurant and say like, I want X Y Z, or go to the grocery store and buy whatever they want. Like we, I never had that, and it just gave me a lot more appreciation for for everything that I do have now. That makes sense. Um, Vlada, you and a number of your colleagues came to one of our leadership camps. Yes. And I'm curious, what's one thing that has been beneficial to your company that occurred because of your group's attendance at leadership camp? Sue, it's hard to pick one. Um, I'm going to cheat. Great. First one is the Enneagram. Understanding the Enneagrams has been so opening for me, in particular in my relationship with other people in the company, um, I can really understand their motivation. And so in the past where I would have, it would have been easy for me to make a story up that might be negative. Um, I can now understand their motivation and, and actually have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is the concept of above the line and below the line and realizing that if I'm below the line or when I'm the below the line, because oftentimes I am below the line, that is, might not be a good time to be having a particular conversation and waiting and doing like some of the shift moves to, to, be, to get to a point where I'm above the line before engaging in a conversation. Got it. That's awesome. And a great note to end on. I'm sure you guys are grateful that you had a chance to hear from Vlada, Vlada Bortnik. She's co-founder of Joya, 
which runs the Marco Polo app. You should check it out. It is addictive, but addictive in that I get to be more connected to people I love way, which really doesn't suck. Vlada, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sue. This was so much fun. Real Leaders is brought to you by Leadership Camp, and you just heard about that from our guest today. So if you want to learn more about what Vlada was talking about, join us for a two and a half day deep dive into conscious leadership. Build more self-awareness as a leader. Leadership Camp helps make great leaders extraordinary. Find out about the next women's camp, the next co-ed camp, and new for 2018, and these are going to sell out fast. Join us for Man Camp. Reserve your seat today at leadership.camp. Thanks for being with us this time, and we'll see you for the next episode of Real Leaders. Have comments, feedback, questions, anything? Find me on Twitter at TellSue. Thanks, everyone.